0: This week on the Back Table podcast.
1: The nurses are much happier. They love kelp. They're like, oh, he got kelp. Okay. They know they don't have to deal with the headache and recovery of like holding pressure or any type of like increased monitoring. In the OBL, you also have to be very careful. Like if you have some kind of complication where you have to transfer to the hospital, you're under more scrutiny. If you have a complication in the OBL, you got to really have things set up where you don't get, you know, in trouble with whoever's taking your complication. If even if they have a transfer agreement or something, whereas in the hospital, you can have, you have a lot more backup. You have like surgeons, the ICU, all these things to support you, but in the OBL, you're under a lot more, you're on your own kind of, so you kind of want to have something that's way more predictable, more secure, more reproducible, where you're not expecting surprises. You do a long grab. you don't want to have a groin issue or complication. So definitely been a game changer for me in the OBL space.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. This backtable podcast is sponsored by Vasorum USA, Incorporated. The Vasorum KELT ACD vascular closure device is indicated for the percutaneous closure of common femoral artery puncture sites while reducing time to homeostasis in patients who have undergone diagnostic or interventional intraarterial catheterization procedures. Where either five French or six French introducer sheets have been used. Now, back to the episode. We've got another great uh, multidisciplinary episode lined up. We're going to be talking about new innovations in closure devices. I've got Omar Saleh and Syed Hussein. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Omar's been on the show at least a couple times now. Uh, for those who missed them, it goes way back to episode 37, which, you know, actually I don't really invite people to listen to those early ones because the audio sucks bad. But it was good because it was with Watts, right, Omar? Yeah, yeah,
1: Watts killed it.
2: <laughs> yeah, so it was entertaining at least, you know. And then uh, episode 268, what you were on with Srini Tumala and, and Sabine. You guys were talking about a thorectomy device. That one actually... That one's really good because you guys kind of got into the pros and cons of different afterectomy devices. And we're going to kind of touch on that a little bit today with closure devices. So I, what I like to do is start out with introductions. Syed, I'm going to start with you. Tell us you know,
0: where you're at, where your practice looks like. Sure. Um, so I did uh, my training at Southern Illinois University for a vascular fellowship, trained as a vascular and endovascular surgeon. I've uh, been in practice now for almost 20 years. Uh, my last 10 years, I worked in an OBL setting and uh, a private practice, which I just recently left uh, last year and now currently employed in a hospital employed position. Okay, great. We'll talk about that sort of OBL versus hospital setting
2: with these closure devices as well. Omar, tell us uh, tell us where you're at and what, what your practice looks like.
1: I, I trained at University of Arkansas for my IR fellowship. And then I've been in Southern California for about the last 10 years. I live about 45 minutes out so east of LA downtown in the Inland Empire. So kind of the Riverside Chino area. So, um, but yeah, I do mainly, I was a lot of OBL. I would say I got into OBL probably in 2017. So about seven years or so. And then now I'm getting more into the hospital. Like, so I would say now it's more 50, 50 OBL, ASC and hospital 50%. Okay. Yeah, for a little while, weren't
2: you weren't you helping out Sabine's group for a little while?
1: Yeah, so I would. Or say- Was that on the diagnostic stuff? It was. Well, it was mostly diagnostic. I was. I to kind of get my OBL stuff going. I had to supplement my income doing like diagnostic radiology, where I would work at night, one week on, two weeks off. And my two weeks off, I really worked like you know, try to build up an OBL practice. So that's kind of how that went. Yeah, but that lasted like three years because uh, uh, that, that, that'll mess up your sleep.
2: Yeah, but I mean, th- that's where, I mean, I know there's a big movement in IR right now to go 100% IR, but it is nice to have those diagnostic skills for when you're in those transitional periods. It's, you know, it, there's different opinions out there, right? It gets kind of heated actually sometimes. I mean, all three of us have experience in the OBL setting. Mine was very brief. It was a couple years. But closure devices are really especially important in the outpatient setting, right? For patient experience, for um, peace of mind, right? When you're doing these sort of arterial cases, groin uh, femoral access cases. I want to ask both of you guys, how have they evolved and changed during your career? Uh, Omar, uh, since you're a little bit more junior than Syed, let's start with you.
1: I think in my residency, we were using Angioseal which was fine. I didn't think I had any issues. Then in my fellowship, we started using Perclose. That's like, you know, back in 2013, 2012, 2013, we used pretty much Perclose for everything. And I, I like both of them. And I think I used, I was a pretty heavy Perclose user for a long time, probably for 10 years. And then as things are going at OBL, you know, try to do more different types of procedures like antigrade, SFA, things like that. It was kind of hard for me technically to use that. So then I tried, you know, other devices like minx back to angelcel and then recently kelp probably like 2 years ago kelt so that's kind of my my involvement in the closure device space and then in addition to that you know using uh small french access like four french for a lot of things radial pedal things like that so a lot has changed you know a lot of new devices and things have come out in the last few years that have made more things possible so
2: yeah Syed, tell us about how it's evolved in your practice using closure devices.
0: You know, so, so when I started training, AngioSeal was the only thing that was really available on the market at the time, besides the boomerang device, which I don't know if either one of you is familiar with. You know, it was a, it was a balloon occlusion device. that You take a six-french hole or an eight-french hole or whatever, and you make it into a small two-french hole, you know, and then you hold pressure on a two-french opening. So that's kind of what I was trained with. Uh, so we didn't use a whole lot of um, closure devices when I first started training. Towards the end of my training, we kind of started to do a little bit more with perclose just because of aneurysms it started to become more. We started to do more aneurysms. We were still doing cut downs when I finished my training. So that was pretty much the standard way to do aneurysm surgery back then. But I would say throughout my career, using AngioSeal, using the boomerang device, we used other other sources, things like Minx. I've used a couple of generations of, of minks, perclose, Star clothes, you know, so I've kind of used a little bit of almost everything that's been on the market. Uh, I started using Kelt as soon as it came out in January of 2018. So I've been using it for five years now. And yeah, so that's kind of my background.
2: Yeah, we're and we're for the audience, we are going to be talking a lot about Kelt since I think it's probably the newest thing on the market now. I've you know, I was using Andrew Seal throughout residency, so that, that or sorry, residency and fellowship. So that's what what I was most comfortable with. It's funny you mentioned the boomerang. I I haven't heard that since Fellowship, and that was like 10 years ago. And um, I think we used it for like one or two cases with like an eight French opening. That's why we we pulled that. But I remember it being like not convenient, right, or kind of cumbersome.
0: It was a cumbersome device. Just like you, I used it maybe once or twice. And then after that, I think we just abandoned and went back to manual compression, you know? But yeah, closure devices were kind of frowned upon back then just because there were so many complications, you know, and being a vascular surgeon, taking out the angio seals was always, a, it was always the Friday night special at uh, two in the morning, you know. So, you know, in those cases, uh, seldom went well just because patients always ended up with some type of nerve issue afterwards, you know, just from all the scarring and damage to the arteries. So not that it happens frequently, but when it does happen, it was always kind of a big deal. Yeah, and assuming you guys are both using these devices in
2: uh, for PAD cases, Syed, would that be predominantly what you're using them for?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, we do a little bit of everything. You know, um, we'll do some. We don't do any coronary interventions, so essentially, for my practice, it's all PAD interventions. It's all you know. We do some embolizations, uterine fibroids. We do um, carotid artery stenting. So this is our go-to device now. Got it. Are you ever going radio first for anything? It's a little unusual besides doing fishulograms, which is sometimes a maybe I'll do a radio, but usually I access the fissula directly. I'll use uh, a radial approach. I'll sometimes do a radial approach if I have to do a diagnostic that I know for sure is going to be diagnostic. But I'll tell you, honestly, ever since I've started using the Kelt device, the utility of doing radio has essentially vanished for, for our practice. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Omar, what about you? What are you using uh, closure devices for most? I mean, because I'm I'm sure it's more than PAD, but anything else?
1: Yeah, mostly PAD. I do a lot of fibroid embolizations. We're starting to do a lot of genicular artery embolizations. So, yeah, for mostly PAD and embolizations uh, using closure devices. Okay. And are you doing much radio in your practice? I do a lot of radio, but it's for, um, you know, we're we're a pretty ellipsis heavy practice. So, we're creating a lot of ellipsis. Indo-AV fistulas. And for those, we bring them back in a month and we go radial to mature, to help like angioplasty, the radial artery and the anastomosis. So, and sometimes we do the fish, the Indo-AVF fistulas through radial approach. It just makes it a lot easier. So that's pretty much the only reason I do a lot of radial work is through that, but not much for PAD or
2: for UFEs or yeah, yeah, no, not really. Yeah. I mean,
1: I know a lot of guys are doing radial for prostates and UFEs. I just, I just feel I'm, I'm just, I guess, old school in the sense that I like groin to go to even do fibroids, but you know, occasionally if they have difficult anatomy or something, I'd probably have to bring them back and go radial or, or if, if needed, but not, that's not my go to. I want to talk about a little bit
2: about the importance of effective closure devices for the groin in the outpatient setting versus. The hospital setting, and you guys have experience in both. But let's start with you, Syed, in terms of like how important do you think it is. I mean, in the hospital, you know, they might be a little bit closer monitored. I don't know. It depends on your OBL, depends on your hospital system. But let's talk a little bit about that and your experiences. Syed, I'll start with you.
0: Well, as far as closure devices is concerned, for us in the OBL setting, that has been a huge, huge jump. You know, just you, you have to have a closure device for the OBL setting purely because. You know, our OBL is open from seven to four. So just from the logistical standpoint of throughput, there's no way to put somebody on five to six hours of bed rest in an, in an, in an OBL. You know, I mean, we kind of started off like that and we realized very quickly that you can do maybe three or four cases a day if you're lucky. Your nursing staff is completely occupied. Your medical office assistants are occupied trying to recover the patient. So just from the sheer the sheer idea of trying to do volume in the obl it's it's impossible the other thing is that besides the throughput issue you've got the issue of you know running an obl you know over time your your employees end up staying six six o'clock eight o'clock at night recovering these patients that you've done at three o'clock in the afternoon and so you at some point have to adjust the way you you run the obl so your employees can get out at a reasonable time you know so you may do your last case at one o'clock in the afternoon hoping the employee gets home by 6 PM. So I think, I think the closure device cannot be overstated for the use in an OBL. I think you have to do that. Having said that in the hospital system, when I first came out in practice, I'll be honest with you. I, my first few years in practice, everyone got manual compression, you know, and I didn't even start using closure devices routinely until probably about three or four years after, after my, I've been attending, you know, uh, and a lot of that is because in the hospital, you're not really thinking about throughput. You're not thinking about cost containment. You know, you're not thinking about you're not thinking about if the patient's gonna lay there for six hours. It's not really an issue because you've got nursing staff. You've, you can admit them to the hospital if you need to, et cetera. So that's just that thought process is not there. Yeah, Omar, what about you? Hospital versus
2: OBL.
1: Right. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, for in the OBL, having some t- some type of closure device definitely can change the whole, your whole practice, you know, it's uh, holding pressure or, or having groin complications in the OBL is, can just, you know, really hurt your practice. So having some kind of consistent closure device that's reproducible, reliable, um, that's been a game changer for us, you know, in the OBL space. In hospitals, you know, it doesn't matter as much. You have a lot more support. You have, you know, all types of shifts where they you can send your patient to recovery, have them admitted for observation, things like that. But I'm sure even the hospital, they monitor these type of things, you know, whether the, you know, the, they look at the throughput, they, they, they're always looking at the data, like how, or, you know, from our department, you know, what's who's being admitted, what type of complications are happening, things like that. So, I mean, even a growing complication in the hospitals, by you know, you can manage it much better, but, you know, having, you know, all that stuff is scrutinized, you know, so having a, a good, good outcome in your, you know, arterial cases is definitely important. I think important in both. And um, I recently got kelted in the hospital system and that was one of the things we were trying to tell them, like, hey, we need this because the so and so patients in the past, you know, we had this issue or that issue where they couldn't lie still, things like that, you know, where the nursing had to stay late to hope to monitor them, things like that.
0: You know, I just want to add something to that. You know, I think what Omar says is extremely, extremely true and cannot be understated because I think since I've started practice 20 years ago, I think hospitals have become much more cognizant of the fact that what is your bed rest time? Why is the staff here till 8 o'clock at night? And a lot of those metrics are now things as an employed physician, you really do have to look at and they hold that against you. You know, so I think hospitals also realize they're losing reimbursement because the patients are there longer. You know, so I I, I think the, the... my initial thought process when I first came out of like, it's not my problem, you know, kind of ignorance is bliss. It doesn't matter. You know, I think has really shifted now. I think the doctors are held more accountable to those to those metrics.
2: Yeah. Do, do you guys, so Omar, it sounds like you got the Kelt available in the hospital. How? What's the availability of closure devices in the hospital versus the OBL? Like in the OBL setting, or do you guys only stick with one and like everybody has to use the same one? Because sometimes hospitals are like that; like they only allow for one device to be used for everybody doing endovascular procedures, because they're trying to cut, but you know, make budget cuts and whatnot. But it, it is, you know, not every patient's the same, and it's nice to have a variety depending on the case. Sayed, what, what's it like for you in the hospital versus OBL?
0: Well, you know, I think I think from a hospital perspective, they're always going to look at cost. You know, so I was looking at, you know, what products you have on the shelf, what products they can get rid of, what they can get a good deal on so that most physicians are using that one product. I think, generally speaking, it's kind of a, it depends on where you're at. You know, some hospitals may be more heavily cost containment versus other hospitals. I think, like, I can speak to you from just our hospital and the previous hospitals I've worked at. That is an issue, and they do want you to use one product if at all possible. You know, in a utopian world, that would be ideal, right? All the doctors use the same athroetomy. Same balloon angioplasty, everything, everything's the one, and you're set. But that's just not how it works. I think um, from a closure standpoint, uh, we do have, and in, like in our practice, we do have about four different closure devices on the shelf. You know, ever since we bought the Kelt into the hospital setting um, this past year, they are trying to get everyone else to use the Kelt, and and, and that's been a uh, there's been a lot of pushback. You know, doctors don't want to be told what what closure to use. And they all have their opinions on why they don't want to use it or why they want to use it. So I think that's been our our difficulty in trying to you know universalize one device. So from a hospital perspective, yeah, that's that's always going to be there. It's always going to be a battle. I think physicians are going to have to be fighting fighting with the hospital back and forth. That's I don't see that ever ending.
2: Yeah, Omar, are you are you guys only are you re- restricted to one device in, in one setting or the other?
1: No, I mean OBL uh, versus hospital. In the OBL, it's very. I've been fortunate to have the flexibility to choose whatever closure device, you know, we we need. And usually we have two. Like sometimes, uh, like like right now, I think in the OBL, we have KELT and Angioseal. And sometimes I use Angioseal, depending on whatever reason uh, versus KELT. Um, and then in the hospital, uh, in the IR department, we had Angioseal only. But, uh, you know, we could easily go to cath lab, like cardiology, cath lab, or vascular uh, surgery uh, and borrow or, you know, their minks or per clothes. Cause upstairs, uh, like where I work, the vascular surgeons and cardiologists are doing some of the large bore access where you have to have per to like pre-close, you know, things like that. So, so we have that, we have those options luckily. So I haven't had that problem where I could, I'm only restricted to one closure device, but I, I can see that, you know, it's some people probably have to deal with that. Let's talk a little bit about
2: the, we kind of touched on it earlier, but let's talk a little about the importance of, the patient experience and satisfaction with different closure devices you know kind of what you guys were saying earlier like in the hospital the patient it's there's less emphasis on throughput, although that's that's being you know that is evolving but some patients are just going back up to their house their their room right their hospital bed and so you kind of think okay well they'll be you know put orders in a monitor them, monitor them closely but look laying flat for six hours sucks leaving flat for three hours sucks right and they're not all compliant right some of them are they're post anesthesia they're not they can clearly get up and they move around and also sometimes you know pressure for 20 minutes really hurts them and so do some closure devices so i just want to talk about the 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 patient experience and satisfaction and i think that's going to be one of the main perks when we talk about kelp but Saya, can you you talk about that a little bit and your experience with closure devices versus you know in the
0: hospital so i'll tell you you know um from the hospital perspective, I think I think uh, closure devices are nice to have you know they definitely get the patient off the table but again you know all these devices besides the KELT that we have talked about you know we talk about Angel seal, you talk about minx, they require a certain amount of pressure on the groin. so after you deploy the device you got a whole pressure patient has to be on bed rest for like you said between two to six hours, maybe longer. So I the argument we have from some of the older physicians, who don't use any closure devices is like well what's the point of even using the cost you know we're adding this cost when they're going to be laying on bed rest for six hours it's not like they can move faster anyway you know we might as well just use manual pressure and do our thing i think in the obl setting i'll tell you it's it's a huge huge difference you know because like omar mentioned earlier the issue that you're trying to prevent is you want you want the, the patients to have a good experience a spa-like experience, to be honest. You know, it doesn't mean that your OBL has to look like a spa, but you want them to come in. It's 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 a more efficient care model. The patients come in. They have a really pleasant experience with the staff. You know, they're not walking around a big, you know, million-square-foot building to try to get around and figure out where they're supposed to go. I think um, just the moment they walk through the door to the moment they walk out the door, you're trying to give them a, a specific experience with their angiogram. You know, that's really the purpose of the OBL, you know. You're doing it efficiently. It's more personable. You know the staff. The staff is a small group of people that you get to know over time because they're also the people you see in your office. You know, so there's a lot of crossover from that perspective. So the closure device in the OBL becomes extremely paramount. You know, you want your patients to come in, get the closure device put in, be able to sit up within an hour or two and then get out of there. That That's really what you're looking for. Less painful is obviously ideal. Not always the case with every closure device. You know, you put a close in, it does cause a little bit of discomfort, you know. Um, but on the other hand, the patients are willing to endure it because they can get out of there faster. So from an OBL perspective, it's, it's a different mindset. You know, I think, because it's not just about the closure device, it's about the whole the whole OBL experience. And I think that's where Kelt really is is an amazing device because literally you put the device in. Patients get up, they walk off the table, they walk back to their recovery room. So you've already done your check for the hematoma, so you know that's not going to happen. They're in there for 20 minutes, they eat something light, and then they get up and they leave, and that's the end of it. So they literally walk in an hour before they get their case done, and they're out in 20 minutes. You know, it's no stress on the nursing staff, no stress on the family. Yeah. Well, let's. I let's. Uh, it's time to start jumping into the kelp. Uh, Omar,
2: can
1: you walk through how you place a kelp? Sure. So I use, you know, I, it goes through a 11-centimeter sh- uh, sheet. So, so you say you do your angiogram. Um, I've, I've done KELT anti access and retrograde. So from retrograde, you know, uh, what I do is when I do the angiogram, I always do an image store of the fluoro of where my needle is entering, you know, so I know exactly where the KELT is going to be deployed, you know, so I have an idea how, how far to bring it back when I uh, deploy it. But then you know, um, you know, if you do an intervention through like a long de- destination sheath, after you're done, you just switch it out back for like a six French or seven French, eleven centimeter sheath, and then you just place the kelt and under floral, you can deploy it. And then as soon as I deploy it, I have the patient bend their knee, and you can just see it under floral that okay, it works. You're done. You know, you can just you know they're ready to go. <laughs> it's super uh, reproducible, super reliable for anagrade. I. I um, I do it a little differently. I stick a little lower, like I, I like to use a sh- more shallow angle. Like uh, sometimes it's hard for me to place a KELT device if like the angle is kind of steep, you know, when you're trying to do an anti-grade access. So what I'll do is I'll try to stick a more shallow angle and sometimes I'll end up accessing kind of at the area of the lesser trochanter where I can, and then the, the reason for that is I want to be able to see under ultrasound exactly where my KELT is being deployed and i, I deployed under ultrasound i really i really want to release the first disc at the where it um where you can really see it so it doesn't drag on the wall of the artery or anything like that and then you as soon as you see that thing you can deploy it under ultrasound and you're 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 good to go you're done but that's kind of how i've been doing the two ways of kel deployment but man when that thing goes it's like you know Steph Curry shoots a three and just turns around. He doesn't even look to see. That's how, I mean, it's money, you know? That's what I do. I just want, I don't even look. I, I leave. I'm done, you know? I you're, see him in recovery. You don't have to <laughs> worry about the, all mic, the pressure yeah. or anything.
2: <laughs> That's cool.
0: Syed, is your technique
2: uh, different from Omar's in any way?
1: It's roughly about,
0: fairly similar. I You know, I access all my arteries under ultrasound just like Omar does and I'm sure most of the interventionists out there do after the procedures done you switch out to a five six or seven or eight with short short sheath you know whichever sheath you decided to use I'll put the device in I will typically under floral pull the device back I, you know so what I'll do is with an ultrasound machine I'll have a kind of an idea where I access the artery so I look at the ultrasound, while I'm doing florals, I can see, okay, this is where I need to be to be out of the artery. I'll deploy the disc, pull it back. And again, just like Omar, I tend to try to minimize how early I deploy that first disc so I don't drag it across the artery, especially if it's calcified or full of plaque, etc. Once I pull it back against the anterior uh, common femoral artery wall, I'll usually have my, my cath lab technologist who's scrubbed in with me. She'll come around to the top of me and she'll actually push... The skin down so they'll put pressure on either side of it and push it down so there's maximum contact between the anterior wall and the device and minimal subcutaneous tissue to deal with. I don't know if you guys can picture what I'm talking about. You know, so you basically have them push pressure down, so it's literally right up against the anterior wall, and then I'll deploy the device and I don't check it with an ultrasound i just check it under floor to make sure it's not moving and then i assume it's deployed because like omar said you deploy it and then you're kind of it's like mic drop and you walk away i i literally do the same thing for anti-grade access and for all my other types of accesses like popliteo or mid sfa or whatever i'll access the artery and i'll do it the same way every time so there's not a lot of variation for that perspective it is pretty neat to be able to Place it
2: under ultrasound. It, that those are the demos that I've watched. Um, just watching that plate come come up under ultrasound. Did we, you know, as part of I don't know if you saw this, Omar, but recently Duke Duncan posted some comments about the kelp. Uh, I guess he had just gotten a demo for it. and He was sourcing some questions from the audience or asking for feedback, and he there was a bunch of questions on there. and And I thought it would be actually great to sort to kind of pull some questions from the audience because. I think one of the most common questions is like, and, and I want to get y'all's thoughts on leaving a metal implant behind, which is essentially what it is, right? To like a small plate. Omar, can you can you speak to that? Have you seen any negative consequence of that or?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that is probably one drawback of KELT, like where you have to avoid that. You know, what I do is when I, when if, if I have to, it's kind of changed my practice a little bit. If I know uh, I'm using KELT, I always try to do what I, the most, I you know, you don't want to keep bringing patients back if you don't need to. You want to do maximize their angiogram, right? You want to hit, you know, two levels, DCB, whatever you need to do. So they don't have to come back, you know, that, so, you know, you're using kind of makes you more conscious. Okay. Like, you know, you don't want to keep bringing them back, but the thing is you can stick the KELT, I mean, you can deploy the kelt right next to the, the previous deployment or you can go a little lower, you can kind of use areas that are not being conventionally used for previous access. Okay. But I, cause I mean, what I try to do is I want to leave a little space for anybody else. Like say, if the patient needs something else done by another, you know, another doctor that they can just go above my kelt and, and do it and close. And I've had that. I mean, I've been, I've said, you know, we have some patients that I've shared with like some of my lo- local vascular surgeons who are not using kelt. And they'll just tell me, Oh yeah, I went above your Celt and I used Minx or whatever. You know, because these are like patients with like really calcified arteries or things like that where they're using some other type of device. But yeah, I can kind of see that being a problem. Uh, if you end up putting like six Celts in one, you know, I saw I saw one at uh angiogram where th- someone has six Celts there, you know, and and uh, and they're doing fine. You know, like on IVIS, everything's okay, you know, it's endothelialized. But um, that is one drawback. But I would like to say also that, you know, if you if you do six seals on that groin. It's going to be hard to access, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be struggling uh, putting in like a sheath, huh? You know? so Yeah.
2: Way worse. I think with the hindu seals, given those foot plates.
1: Right. So, I mean, even k- with Kel, with Kel, the least a groin, when you bring them back, it's nice and soft. You can easily access. Whereas seal, sometimes it's very hard to even put like a, a sheath in, or you have to use like some other techniques, like a stiff, stiff glide and stiff, you know, like 018 systems and kind of upsize. So with that, you're also battling. So,, uh, you know, you may end up holding pressure on those it becomes a hostile groin later on anyway. So that's that's just a, just a couple of my thoughts on that subject.
2: So, does it impact the ability to do future large and small board procedures
0: for you? Have you like because you do open surgeries as well? have what have you seen? So just to kind of tell you number one, what Omar said is hundred and fifty percent correct. You know, I think um, I do the exact same thing he does. The kelp actually guides me for my next kelp placement. And so I'm able to say, okay, I'm going to put them right next to it or right above it or right below it. And I try to keep my CELTS kind of lined up in the same area, if at all possible. So it does give other practitioners the opportunity to access above or below if they need to. Um, and again, same findings. On the IVIS exams I've done with patients with four or five CELTS, I have not seen any significant uh, intimal hyperplasia that causes significant narrowing in the artery. You know, I mean, it's well on the thelialized on the anterior wall. I think as far as... uh the angio-CO, the minx devices, multiple perclose devices used in, on these groins, those groins do turn into hostile groins, and they are very difficult to reaccess. access um, So even though you don't have a scar on the groin, you've got an artery that's completely scarred off on the inside. So again, I, I can't agree with him more on his explanation for that, and I think that's really understated as well because this idea of leaving something be- behind has become such a big deal and what people don't realize is that even though you've got multiple calts in the groin, the amount of scarring that you get is so minimal compared to what you see with minks or with angiocele or with perclose devices placed in there multiple different times. Especially if you've got, you know, my personal experience with minks has been a lot of pseudoaneurism. So you've got people with pseudoaneurysms that have been injected and now you've got you've got these multiple hematomas that are sitting in there that have to be treated. As far as opening these patients up, I'll tell you, Opening up the groin on somebody with multiple seals or or minxes or percloses, it's like a bomb went off in the groin. You know, So when you get in there, everything is stuck together. The nerve, you can't tell the nerve. You can't tell the artery or the vein is stuck together. So it requires a lot of meticulous dissection. So a groin exposure that takes like 10, 12 minutes can take up to an hour just to try and dissect everything off. I've done the exposures for CELT devices where I've done Eventual fem pops on patients or fem distal bypasses. and I'll be honest with you, there is inflammation there too, but it's very localized to where you deployed that kelt. So it's very easy to get above and below, get control of the artery. And so you have very minimal dissection to do with the kelt deployment. you know and, and the nice thing is when you open these arteries up, you can see the actual Celt device on the artery and how it's literally embedded in the arterial wall. I mean, it's really quite amazing to open it and to see that it's on the interior wall. You know, so it's, it's much easier. Interesting. Uh, another
2: question from the audience was, how many is too many Celts? Have you seen that they're, you
0: know, <laughs> what's the most you've seen and was it problematic, I guess? Uh, so I'd say I've not been overly impressed with number. I don't have a number to tell you, honestly. I've seen some patients who I've done four or five on. I've seen some patients who come from all over the place who've got like 10 or 12. know they're kind of distributed all over the artery that's the interesting thing about kelt is you'll see punctures in the mid sfa you'll see punctures in the proximal sfa you'll see punctures in the external iliac artery i mean so they're, they're sort of distributed everywhere the issue that a lot of vascular surgeons and some cardiologists have complained about is large bore access you know 12 french 18 french sheets 20 french sheets things like that honestly I have not found that to be an issue. Uh, I do triple and thoracic aneurysms, and uh, I'll tell you, typically you'll be able to find a spot on the artery where you can access and, and do your percutaneous intervention. The bigger problem becomes where you're doing branched endografts, you know, multiple branched endografts the mesenterics, the the renal's. You know, you're doing thoracic endografting. You're trying to put in complex endografts up in the in the branch vessels of the of the thoracic aorta. So you need multiple access sites if. At the end of the day, if that's an issue, then the easiest thing to do is just cut down and expose the artery, and you're able to do that too. So there may be some limitations from that perspective, but ultimately, in some nothing that can't be overcome. Omar, any
2: concerns regarding like plaque? I know you talked about it when you're watching it under ultrasound, but uh, one question from the audience was concerns regarding plaque dislodgement while retracting the device to the vessel wall.
1: Yeah, it hasn't been an issue for me because I'm. I really uh, I'll deploy the first disc even if I'm under fluoro, I always save where I'm entering, you know, so I will deploy like very close to the arteriotomy. And um, from there, uh, I haven't had any issues. If there's any resistance, I I, I, I put the Kel device very parallel to, this, to the artery. And then usually if I feel any resistance, I can kind of watch under fluoro and ultrasound to make sure I don't hit any plaque or anything like that add a great SFA is much easier. I can see. Um, I, I I I don't deploy it until I can see it, and then I can see exactly it dra- go against the wall, and then depl- and do the second marker. Got it. Somebody sent over from the audience a journal. Uh, I guess it's an abstract from
2: JVS talking about the safety and efficacy of the kelp from 2022. And what what was most interesting about it was the the median time to. Hemostasis to ambulation and to discharge was all under thirty-one minutes, and you know they they only report no major complications to minor complications, which were minor soft tissue bleeding from the access site. Can you guys speak to the time to ambulation and and discharge at all? I mean that seems, that seems unbelievable, honestly. When you know, I mean, like you'd never do that with any other closure device. But uh, Sayed, can you talk a little bit about that because that seems to be one of the biggest benefits.
0: Yeah, so I think in our our ROBL, we would routinely, so typically when I do an angiogram, I won't give a ton of sedation, you know, so I'll give like maybe 50 of fentanyl, maybe a milligram of Versed, uh, and we'll do our case that way. So by the time you're done with the case, the the sedation is essentially worn off. We'll put the Celt in and, and more times than not, we'll actually have the patients get off the table and walk back to the recovery room. And then we'll check their groin and that'll tell you everything you need to know. There's no hematoma. Like I said, we give them a little snack, and then 20 minutes later, they get discharged. You know, some of the patients who are a little bit more groggy, we basically do the light test, like Omar Omar talked about. We'll sit them up in their in their gurney, we will roll them back, and then our protocol has always been 30 minutes of bed rest, get them up, walk them in the hallway, and then discharge them after that. And it's worked out great. I kind of I try to do that at my hospital now where I'm employed in. That's always a shocking thing. The staff yeah. is like, no, no, we can't do that. You know, so it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, uh it's, it, it freaks everybody out when they see the patient walking back from the cath lab and they're just like, wait a second, the patient's got to be in the chair and they, they might fall, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's a little bit more challenging to do it in the hospital just because of the rules. But it does get the staff, the look on the staff is always kind of interesting to watch, you know, watching the patient walk back from the cath lab, you know? I bet that's pretty impressive
2: to the, your cardiology colleagues. Are they, are individual cardiologists, starting to use the kelp
0: at your hospital? That's been a little bit challenging. The arguments that I get back from them is, you know, they don't like leaving a piece of metal behind. That's been like their only kind of complaint at this point. I, I don't know if it's if it's more because they don't want to use it because the vascular surgeon's using it. You know, right? It's, it's hard. It's hard to say. You know. Yeah, Omar. What about you? What's
2: been your experience with getting patients? ambulating afterwards?
1: Oh, I mean, it's, it's been amazing. Um, You know, I've had some recent patients that had like severe back pain, like they can't lie flat on the table and they just, after a kelp, they just, you know, we can sit them up right away. That's been great. My uh, mother-in-law had a genicular artery embolization done and they did kelp or I actually did it on her. She did, she had the kelp placed and uh, she walked immediately to the bathroom. She didn't want to use a bedpan. And I mean, I mean, she's like the happiest person, you know, from the need from the genicular artery embo, thank you back table for that podcast episode that got me started on that procedure but also the kelp's been awesome i mean she walked immediately and then went you know went home um just i mean fibroid embolizations you know they're always in pain they they have po- like that cramping where they can like kind of bend their knees and walk to the bathroom and i mean so i mean it's been a huge change in our obl practice or even hospital practice now because using since using the kelp
2: yeah and you guys haven't had any significant, I mean, similar to this article where they describe really no significant hematomas, anything that you guys have had, any issues that you've had?
1: I had one um, embolize one time, like when I was first starting the anti approach, I was just using fluoro only. And I thought I had, I was against the vessel and I, you know, it was, you know, I had saved it with fluoro and I thought it was against the vessel and I, it wasn't, I mean, maybe it got stuck on the, maybe somewhere. So I had to, but that, after that, I've not had any issues because I've been using ultrasound. <laughs> but that's my only complication I ever. No hematomas, no pseudoaneurysms. So the only thing I would advise is like just make sure you use ultrasound. At least I think I think when you're going SFA, it's a little different than retrograde. It's just the anatomy is a little different. So really, ultrasound, you gotta you gotta use that and really watch it under real time, and then you can. But that was the only time I had a complication, which I was able to fix. But that's it. I mean, otherwise, nothing like my seal and other complications from other closure devices. Right. Side, so what about to you? No, I haven't. I have not had. I've done a little over 4,500
0: of these now. And um, I would say I've only had one complication. I know nobody wants to believe that, but that's the truth. And my uh, embolization occurred on my second case, and it was a technical error because I didn't as I was pushing down on the groin, I didn't I didn't pull it up. I didn't hold the anterior wall retraction like I'm supposed to. So I started to lighten up on that, and I deployed the device, and immediately I looked on the floor, and it was gone. I'm like, where the heck did it go? And it was stuck down the TP trunk. Uh, very easy, you took an 8 front sheath, stuck him from the other groin, came up and over, grabbed it, and took it out. So it wasn't an issue uh, from that perspective, but that was my only complication. I got to say, by the grace of God, I have not had a single hematoma, pseudoaneurysm, late bleed or anything like that. So just like Omar, it's been a really clean, a clean cut device, which is the reason we switched over to it completely. So yeah, I use it on all my cases now for everything. Uh, I, it's easy. it's actually the best part about it is, you know, we used to do patients with fem pop grafts, airdo by fems. I know all of you have done that as well, and it works fantastic on dacron, on ptfe, uh, on vein grafts. So I'm able to access a vein graft and then put a kelt in. I mean, it's really change the way I'm able to treat patients with just patients with previous bypass grafts. If they have a fem-fem graft now, what I'll do is I'll access them in the pubis area, right, with ultrasound through the PTFE graft. We'll fix the right or left leg, and then we'll put the put the calc directly into the PTFE, and it works fantastic.
2: Yeah, you know, worst case scenario, it embolizes. It sounds like it's pretty easy to grab with a snare. Is that I mean, so what it sounds like? Is that because it has? It's not like a perfect circle, right? It has like edges to it that
0: you right. can snare it with. Yeah, you could pretty easily grab it with the with the regular snare end snare, or I mean, I don't, I don't know, Omar, I don't know in your opinion if you feel like a, a goose snare is necessary, but I just used an end snare that one time and just pulled it out.
1: Yeah, I would have, I would probably have like a snare available for that. What else? Yeah, I maybe mean, that's like the rare thing you'd have to worry about. But you know, in addition to that, I'd like to say like, say you. Say you're in the OBL and you have an angiocele complication, okay, you really don't know what happened. Like, you don't know if it's, you don't know if it, the collagen plug went into the artery. You don't know if it's just a pseudoaneurysm. The only way you'd know is like you'd have to hold pressure or you're holding pressure and just like so pressurized that you have to go maybe up and over, maybe fix it with a Viabon. And, and the thing is like, you know, I always stick kind of low so I can at least fix it with a Viabon. You don't I don't mess with the common from artery where you'd have to get it surgically repaired at the hospital. I think. But with a KELT, you can at least, if, if it were to happen, you can at least hold pressure more easily and you can see where it's going. And then you know, you have, you know what happened, you know, you at least know what happened. You're not kind of guessing where you need like a CT angiogram to see what kind of, what exactly happened if there is some kind of complication with like some other type of device, which you can't see under fluoro. So that's one more thing <laughs> not <Yeah. like> that I'd like to add.
0: I think that's in- interesting, you know, Aaron and Omar, I think, uh, this is the one device that I have found that works on calcified arteries. So if you've got calcified arteries, you could totally use it. It doesn't, you know, the percolose, you, you know, you're a little more reluctant to use it because, you know, the perclose won't work more times than not in the calcified artery. Uh, Angiocele, as you guys already know really well, it doesn't work well on calcified arteries. But this thing, it literally works on all calcified arteries. And and one of the things that I found interesting about it is the fact that it's the one of the, it's probably the only device that is 100% technically dependent. So in other words, you have a complication, it's a pretty good chance that it's because it was a technical deployment issue on behalf of the guy doing the case, you know? So it's really hard to blame the device for not performing,
1: you know? I think, um, uh, would you agree, Omar? What, do you, what yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, the the, the only one complication I've had with Kel, and I, I don't know how many I've done, but I've been probably using it for the last two years, and I, I you know, but I've done enough to know, like, feel very comfortable with it. Where like, if you, like, that was the only one time I had a complication. I wasn't that, com- that was my first anti-grade access, you know, trying to do it. Um, but, but, you know, now it's like very, very reproducible. Like, you know, you try to, you, I'm a, I was very comfortable with Perclose, very comfortable with Agusil, but when that happens, you're like, man, what happened? You know, <laughs> if you get some kind of weird uh, device failure, work health, you can really, um, you know, it's, you can really, it's very reproducible, very predictable. And also one thing, you know, you can kind of bail yourself out too. Like, you know, you, you, if you're not happy or you think that you didn't deploy it against the wall, you can just pull it out and hold pressure. Like the discs will collapse, you know, like you don't have to, you're not, if you're, if you're not sure you're not, you're not done until you pull that trigger. And, you know, so if you're, you know, you can check it. If you check it and you don't think you deployed it on the wall or you look with ultrasound, you know, you don't think you deployed it right. You can completely bail on it and hold pressure. You're not going to, embolize it you can you know you're not going to embolize it until you pull that trigger you know so it's designed where even if those two discs are deployed you can hold it perpendicular and pull it out and the discs are designed to collapse so i thought that was nice too i mean you know you have some bailouts and options you know the only other thing is like where per close you can put the wire back in and re you know that's one nice thing about per close is you know you don't lose your wire access where you would lose it with Angus or kelp, but I mean this that that one thing about kelp where you can kind of pull it out if you need to and you know hold pressure as long as you have a suitable area to hold pressure that that's a nice little bailout where if you're not 100 percent sure you don't have to deploy it.
2: Yeah. Well, I got one last question that we're about wrapping up on the hour here. One one of the other questions from the audience was given the the seemingly improved patient experience and and better satisfaction with all these things uh, with the kelp is it possible to, to go back to like trying to get it in at your hospital? Can you can you use like customer me- medicine metrics like CAHPS to demonstrate value and translate that value to like kind of help get the KELT into your hospital? Because I think that's part of, the, I mean, more and more, everybody's obsessed with, you know, consumer medicine metrics, patient metrics, basically, like patient satisfaction. And especially if it's somebody who's a recurring, you know, PAD patient, which Tends to be the case. Have you guys seen people utilize those metrics to try and get devices in? And could you imagine that would help in this case?
0: Sayed, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think you, in this day and age, cost is so important, you know. And and based on what you're getting reimbursement wise for the procedures you're doing, um, and looking at your overhead, I think that is probably the most important way to get products into your hospital. I think um the Celt you can make a very easy case for. You know, it's not a it's not a horribly expensive device. I mean, I would say cost-wise it's middle in the middle of the road compared to like Perclose or Andrew Seal. and I'm sure there's a host of other devices on the market that are going to be cheaper, you know, but I think in this particular case cost-wise it's relatively cheap so it's not a, you're not spending a ton of money on capital equipment. I think the benefits that it provides is very, very easy. And I think it's very easy for a hospital to gauge that. You know, you look at your overtime, you look at your resources being utilized in the cath lab to try to get control of your patient's bleeding issues. You know, you look at your hematoma outcomes, you know, things that would prompt someone to stay 23-hour observation, you know, these days, or keeping them in a unit where they stay overnight and you have a nurse that's monitoring them overnight to see them, wonder what's going to happen with them in the morning. So I mean, that's, those are easy things to follow for a hospital, and in fact, our hospital has done that. They've looked into the cost containment issue, and they've they know Cal is superior by far to all the other devices we have in our hospital right now. We've also started looking at looking at radial access, and as radio access really, really making that difference that we talk about with patient satisfaction. You know, because you know. Uh, I mean, radio access has its own issues. I know we didn't talk about this, but briefly, just to tell you, I mean, there are there are issues with hits to the brain, you know, coming from the radio access site. I mean, there's been studies published on it. Uh, it's very simple to look at that data to say that there are, radio is not a 100% safe methodology to do cases, especially if you're working on the legs. You know, there's no reason to be going past the vertebral arteries and into the thoracic aorta and then not worrying about the fact that you're actually causing micro strokes the entire time, you know, which, can, which by the way, shows significant cognitive decline over time. So, you know, when you look at that, couple with the fact that you have a device out there that gets these patients out of the hospital quickly, they, they have good outcomes, the satisfaction scores are off the charts, you really remained with just one challenge, and that is convincing the other physicians in the hospital to use the device. And I don't know about where you guys have worked in the past, but I'll tell you, every hospital is a little bit different. In our hospital, the challenge has been that the doctors have a lot of ability to say, I just don't want to use it, and that's that. And and you're stuck. you know. So that, that's kind of our, our, our challenge. The OBL was a hell of a lot easier because when I owned the OBL, we only had one device because you, you decide what's going to be in the lab and you tell your physicians that come in after you that that's what they're going to use and that's the end of it. You know, We're not bringing multiple devices in, that's just the OBL is a very different animal. You know, I know we didn't get into a lot here, but on the OBL itself, but uh, needless or suffice it to say, I I think you have a lot more control to exert and say, this is what we're going to use and that's it. Yeah. Omari, what do you think about that
2: in terms of like, because, uh, you know, patient experience satisfaction, like that's super important. We talked about that in the OBL setting, but you know, it also goes back to your referring docs, right? If you're Patients have a horrible experience because they, I mean, this happened to me, like I had a patient had a bad hematoma and the referring doc was not happy with me at all. And I didn't get any more patients from that referring doc, right? If you could just, you know, tell us a little bit more about that in terms of customer experience and how important that is in the OBL setting.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's very important. Um, patient satisfaction is huge in the OBL. Like, you know, they're going to go back to the referring doctor and, you know, Tell them how good the procedure went, things like that. You really don't want them to have some kind of delayed complication. Like sometimes, you know, they can even have an seal done, then two days later they'll feel a pop, and then go have to go to the ER. And then you're like, oh man, you know, there's like a pseudoaneurysm or something, and you know, just things like that. You know, you did everything right at your OBL. Uh, you're you, there's always that fear of like a delayed pseudoaneurysm or hematoma, which I haven't seen with Kelt. The nurses are much happier. They're you know they're so like they love kelp. They're, you know, (laughs) they're like, Oh, you got kelp. Okay. You know, they know they don't have to deal with the headache and recovery of like holding pressure or any type of like increased monitoring. Um, you know, in the OBL, you also have to be very careful. Like if you have some kind of complication where you have to transfer to the hospital, you know, sometimes the hospital, uh, you know, you're under more scrutiny. If you have a complication in the OBL, you got to really have things set up where, you know, like you don't get, you know, in trouble with some Whoever's taking your complication, if if you even if, if, even if they have a transfer agreement or something, you know you're you know you're where it's in the hospital, you can have you have a lot more backup. You have like you know you can, you're you have your uh, surgeons uh, the ICU, all these things to support you. But in the OBL, you're under a lot more. You're by your you're on your own kind of. So you kind of want to have something that's way more predictable, more secure, more reproducible. We're not expecting surprises at the end of the. You do a long agi grab. You don't want to have a groin issue or complication. So that a couple of those, yeah, it's definitely uh, been a game changer for me in the OBL space. You know,
2: yeah, that community reputation is yeah incredibly important. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, well, great guys. I know we we're at the hour, and um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I thought it was a great discussion. I think you guys laid out some great pearls around this device and sort of what the benefits are and and how these devices have in you know evolved over time it is pretty amazing that like patients are just getting up off the table now if you think about it compared to what we were doing 10 years ago thank you so much for listening if you haven't already make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend if you have any questions or comments direct message us at at underscore back table on instagram twitter or linkedin Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dung, Michael Barraza,
1: and Ali Behetti.
2: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from
0: Josh McWherter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Manisha Naganathanahali. And Manbir Singh Subli. Administrative support provided by Jimi Kenebrou.
2: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. The statements and information provided in this podcast are for educational purposes only. Based on the independent and exclusive medical opinions of the physicians, and have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The information provided should not be relied upon for medical advice or treatment, as individual patient results may vary. For complete information for the KELP ACD device, including the IFU, contraindications and warnings, please refer to the IFU at www.vasorum.ie for more information.